1: I think it's a very interesting market, Southeast Asia in general, but Philippines in particular. And it, it's a great segment. It's the generation that will drive the economy in the next in the next 15, 20 years. And so it's, it's a great way to acquire these customers and basically help them to get into the formal system. That's kind of our long-term vision. You buy these customers when they just get started and um, stick with them, build the products that they want, and the sky is the limit.
2: Welcome back to How to Lend Money to Strangers, the podcast about lending strategies across the credit lifecycle and around the world. Today we're visiting the Philippines, where I speak to Georg Steiger, an Austrian-born entrepreneur who co-founded First Digital Finance, a fintech that's using advanced machine learning algorithms and a buy-now-pay-later business model to extend credit to the underbanked populations of that country.
1: So I'm originally from Austria, from Vienna, actually studied law. Then decided I don't want to be a lawyer, did a bit of um, tech development on the side. So I actually was a bit of a programmer for a while and then uh, went to US to business school, met my wife there and then we moved both to Zurich uh, where I joined McKinsey basically in the financial institution practice. And yeah, after two years, I wanted to see a bit more growth-focused market. So I uh, transferred over to Singapore office, spent then about seven years in Singapore, focusing on retail banking and um, risk management across the region. So I've worked in Indo, in uh, Philippines, a lot of time in Vietnam, Thailand, yeah, even, even Dubai. So yeah, great, great opportunity to see different markets at different stages of development.
2: Yeah, let's pick up on that point about Growth focused. Uh, the Philippines is a market that's not often spoken about with the same excitement when the same conversations when we talk about India and China and their rapid growth. But the fact is, over the last decade or so, the Philippines has often been Asia's fastest growing economy. Now, there's certainly a lot of growth that still needs to happen, but this is really a fast growing environment. It is, though, also a market that has quite a lot of diversity in terms of its level of development. If we contrast some parts of Metro Manila to some of the further-flung islands and provinces, it's a very different environment. So, could you maybe give us a bit of an insider's view of what it's like to lend in the Philippines at the moment?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting market actually, because on the one hand, it's actually a bit more, um, I would say, Western in terms of feel of of the whole culture and and uh, environment, because of course with close relationship to the US um, and 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 Europe, right? So and large parts of the population are actually English speaking. So it's actually very accessible for say Western companies, Western Western people. On the other hand, it has it has received much less focus in terms of both, I would say, um, multinationals really pushing hard here and, and also in terms of uh investments in the in the fintech scene, right? So if you look at at like Asia. Of course, uh, China and India is where uh, the big bucks go. And then one level below maybe is is, uh, Indonesia, right? So if you talk to investors and they're talking about Southeast Asia, that's 90% actually Indonesia. Indonesia has actually developed very fast in the last, uh, say, five years in terms of um, market, especially electronic transactions, e-commerce, but also fintech. And uh, Philippines, I think, is just really at the at the part where the curve gets, gets steep. So there have been actually just in the last two weeks, a couple of exciting deals. We have seen actually a huge push to online during the whole pandemic because yeah, we've been on lockdown for um, more than a year now. So behavior has really, really changed. Uh, and no no amount of marketing money could have bought you that change in behavior that we have seen. Like for example, cash used to be by far the parent uh, payment method. And now a lot of customers uh, have just shifted to e-wallet, right? basically overnight because suddenly they were scared of, of touching cash and, and uh, buying stuff online. So now really everybody accepts, for example, our payments via e-wallet. That has really accelerated the pace of digital adoption. And I think we will see that trend continuing over the next few years. So yeah, it's an exciting place to be right now.
2: And just geographically, I think it's a country that stands to benefit a lot by the move to digital I can't remember the exact numbers anymore, but I think it's over 7,000 islands that make up the Philippines. So a lot of people are really just hard to reach physically. So if we're thinking about a branch network, we even just where you might want to send out things like credit cards by mail. It can become very expensive to serve these populations, especially when we're talking relatively low loan values. When you came to the Philippines, it was as a management consultant and you were working with some of the more traditional banks. But you obviously saw something while doing that that made you want to strike out on the entrepreneurial journey. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you saw in the market? And then also talk to us about some of the brands that you've launched. I introduced you as the co-founder of First Digital Finance, but that's not the name necessarily that people in the market would know your work by.
1: Yeah. So I spent two years working with a bank here, helped them set up the retail business and that was kind of my segue into the market before I, I try to start something on my own, but that, that was the long-term plan. And um, also with, with my, my friends who, who are now my co-founders, we saw that the processes were still very traditional and very paper-based. And what that means is that the operating costs per underwritten loan are just way too high to make sense for 90% of the population. So the ticket sizes, the tenors, and so on that... Would make sense for a bank to underwrite given the operating costs that they incur, because that is not different, right? If you make a one hundred dollar loan or one thousand or fifty thousand dollar loan, the cost of underwriting that is not is actually not so different, right? Because you still need to do your DD and check on the customer and so on. So yeah, given given the high cost, it basically means that with a process like that, you you cannot serve ninety uh, percent of the population profitably. So that was the basic premise, um, and if if you apply modern technology, cloud-based technology, quick development cycles. Plus, back then, you already started to see like um, a lot of the machine learning and, and AI advances emerging, right? So basically, if you apply all of this stuff, can't you make it like cheaper and, and more efficient by at least one order of magnitude? That was the basic premise, how we started it. We started with really looking for segments that we we felt were underserved by the banks, so one of the segments was uh, OFWs. So Philippines has a large labor expert in industry. So um, I think about fifteen percent of GDP are actually remittances from from abroad. So many Filipinos go work abroad for better opportunities and then remit that money back home. And to go abroad often is is uh, quite a financial burden. And um, some of them get that from the family, but then others need to borrow for it. And um, it's a loan that's really life changing for many of them because they go from earning, I don't know, three $400 here abroad, and then they can earn uh, a multiple of that, right? But again, for a bank to do this, um, extremely complicated because the documents are often in foreign languages. Um, so, for example, if a customer presents a document in Arabic, a lot of these customers are going to Arabic, right? Um, to, to a bank officer, he would probably say get get it translated, right? We just use uh google translate and say okay yeah looks like <laughs> look like looks like it's right and it looks like the other five that we've seen in the last few weeks so it's it's probably not uh, not a problem right so that that was uh one product um and then another product was uh, loan ranger that was actually one of the first online lending uh sites in the philippines both are still running but then in in 2017 we said okay this can't be it because both are running profitable, but not really scaling and, and reaching the number of customers that we had had hoped. So he said, okay, hey, let's think what we can do. And then we we basically had a discussion with Lazada and said, hey, you guys are doing great stuff on rolling out e-commerce, but we all know that payments is still an issue. It's all cash on delivery. Very few, few customers have credit cards and the ones who have don't want to use it on, on a website. So why don't we do something together in uh, payments? Right? And that's how we set up Billy's. Yeah. And, and since then, we have basically invested most of our resources in building out that product and that platform. Added now many more products to it. So it's a full-fledged app where customers can get Lazada top-ups. They can get Gcash top-ups, uh, PayMaya top-ups, or all the major e-wallets. They can get bank loans, but that's only switched on for loyal customers. They can now shop at more than 100 merchants, very directly integrated. So you can, in the checkout, just pay with billies. And we have mobile load, gaming loads. That's Basically, anything a customer could want, they can they can do directly from the Belize app.
2: Right. So you are using buy now, pay later as a way to help that migration in the portion of the population that I guess would have been underbanked or sort of at least seen as difficult to lend to in the past? It's been about five years now since I have worked in the Philippine market, so my numbers may be a bit old. But from memory, there were only about two to three million consumers with a credit card there um, out of a population of 110 million people. So really low penetration and if we think about how would you've done online commerce without a card it would be really difficult without some sort of cash on delivery type process which again very expensive to maintain for low value transactions instead you're now stepping in and giving lots of small short term loans to these consumers and doing the logistics of the cash or at least the payment to the merchants to enable this population that's existed outside of the reach of the big formal banks to be brought along uh, in the rush to online commerce.
1: Correct, correct. So card penetration is still very low, around two, three percent, even for our own customers, right? These are not unbanked or unbankable, I would say underbanked. Uh, So many of them have, or most of them have bank accounts, at least for salary, but these are very rudimentary accounts. Our typical customer will be 25 to 35 years old. So not like their first job, but have a little bit of experience already. We have a lot of call center agents, BPO workers—that's a very big industry here in the Philippines. Kind of unloved a little bit by most of the banks because they change jobs very frequently. We have a lot of freelancers, even bankers. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's, I would say the young professional segment, the emerging middle class that, that we're trying to service. And you know, credit card is a bit of a tricky product when you're new to credit, because a lot of customers take the credit card and then run up the limit and then. Just keep that limit, which is, of course, very profitable for the bank, but not, not so great for the customer, right? So a term product, I think, is, is actually a better entry for many uh, new-to-credit customers because they know they have to pay X over three months, six months, whatever it is, right? And then they are done with it, right? But it's not like a balance that automatically always stays.
2: Yeah, in my old role, I did some research on this. We used to call it the payment hierarchy. Essentially, you know, a consumer with multiple debt obligations falls into financial trouble. Which of those obligations gets paid first? And what we often found is that although if you look at a normal portfolio view, credit cards tend to be less risky than personal loans, when you look at these troubled consumers, invariably it's installment loan that is being paid first, and the credit card is the one that's going into default. Now, I never looked at the data in enough detail to prove it scientifically, but my gut feel is aligned with yours, that a lot of this has to do with direction of travel of balances. So on day one, when you take out an installment loan, you can budget in your head. It's kind of the most you're ever going to have to pay per month, and you pay that same amount. But for a credit card, it works the other way. You're starting with a zero balance and a zero obligation. And then over time, that will slowly build up until maybe in a year's time when you're now having to pay the full balance back. And perhaps in that time, you've taken on new debt or new obligations, or simply your situation has changed, and thus you've created all this affordability stress. So I think installment loans are a better solution in the space. But I guess what was problematic in the past when we think about those economics of making the loan that you spoke about before. We used to have to give a rather large lump sum to justify the costs involved. But if you give somebody a big lump sum of money, one, it's a bigger risk, and two, you're creating some of those same sort of affordability problems. They might have all good intentions, but once the money is in their wallet, it could get spent. So what you're doing with buy now, pay later is in some ways, I guess, like a bottom of the pyramid approach, where when I was at business school, we'd spoke about this idea that, you know, for us, we can go to the store and we can buy a big two liter bottle of shampoo and we can use that over four or five months and we can benefit from the savings of buying in bulk. But for low income groups, they don't have the money to make that big purchase and would in fact prefer to buy lots of small bottles, even though over time that might be more expensive. In terms of the management of cash flow, they don't have that single big payment to make. And you are kind of doing that in some way from a lending point of view. So we're not going to give you one big lump sum. We're going to give you lots of smaller ones as you need it. And because each loan's smaller, you've got less risk at any one time and you're creating all these opportunities to learn.
1: Yeah, it's like, I think they call it sachet um <laughs> products right this little shampoo and, and stuff right so it's like sachet loans that's that's right right it's um it's like training wheels right so we we try to give the customer something where we're pretty sure they can afford and as long as they're willing they can they can pay it back again and and you actually see that also with customers they're quite happy to do that of course, the, the bigger the credit can get, often the, the happier they are, but they're absolutely fine with saying, okay, I have to prove that I can actually handle this. And at least you guys give me a chance, right? And you charge me fair rates. I mean, there's a lot of payday apps in the market that charge pretty, pretty high rates, which is not really helpful. We, we kind of bag it close to where the, the banks are and cards are, but much smaller tickets. Then once they prove that they can actually meet the payments, we, very quickly review the limits and adjust the limits and order this done fully automated, again, to, to keep the OPEX down.
2: You are, though, tackling the problem with some pretty sophisticated analytics as well. This is not just a case of, well, it's a small loan, we'll take a gamble. You've got machine learning AI uh, modeling coming in, and based off some rather interesting data fields, yeah, you know, the traditional credit data fields, but also all sorts of alternative data sources.
1: Yes, absolutely right. So, I mean, Without that, we, it would not be a model that's sustainable. So we, we do review every customer. We have managed now to automate about 90% of our approvals fully. So that means uh, without any human intervention. Basically, what you do first is there's, there's always two aspects, right? One is fraud and the other one is credit. On the fraud angle, just basically make sure that you you can somehow tie that loan to a customer. Right? ID is is not very centralized here. So there's, I think, seven or eight different types of ID that they're accepting Government is now launching a Philippines ID card that should be available for everyone and for lifetime. So once that is rolled out, I think the whole question of identity will be much, much easier to solve. I hope there's also some API so you can check it, like similar to, to what India has done. So that would help a lot on the fraud angle and the identity angle.
0: For full, important safety information, visit juviderm.com
1: Until then, we look at biometrics, we look at fingerprints and, and so on, right? And then the second one is credit. And there we use really all factors that we can find, right? Because it's a very data poor, or it's the, there's very little traditional data, right? So only about uh, 20% of our um, applicants have a credit bureau score, or create bureau entry. We actually built our own bureau score, but which requires a little bit less data than the traditional score. But even with that, we only get about twenty percent decision rate, and eighty percent don't have that. Right? And then, how do you decide on on these customers? And so, we use a lot of unstructured data that we collected over the years, and that that was the hard part, right? I mean, there is a lot of little things that have to come together, push automation rates up to that to that level. So, we actually just managed to do that last year. So, it took us <laughs> it took us a while.
2: Yeah, one thing Filipinos are famous for is the sort of love of the phone, the selfie and high penetration of smartphones. Are you gathering all your data from these sort of associated fields or are you asking consumers to add data in via traditional application forms?
1: Uh, Both, actually. So we use data from the smartphone. We use demographic data that they enter. We use other information, say, on the mobile, email, I p uh, basically a lot of inferred information. We have some behavioral stuff that we're checking, like how they're filling out things and so on. So yeah again, you you have to be very creative in understanding uh, what are factors that could hint at at some aspects of credit quality and then figure out how do you take these factors and and quantify them, or what are proxies that you could look at, and uh, then be very meticulous in collecting the data over time and just running a lot of experiments and and testing what, what works and what doesn't work.
2: Actually, in one of the episodes coming up soon, I speak to some people that are doing big data analytics in Latin America, Africa, sort of developing world, where they're concentrating on all these new data fields. And he says one thing to sort of Switch your mind around with when you're thinking of modeling these fields is we used to have very few fields, but each of those would be really powerfully predictive. But in the AI world, we don't have a lot of super predictive fields uh, coming from these alternative sources, but we have so many of them that together they actually can create the same effect or something close to it. So it's a change of mindset in that front. But for me, what's also interesting is there have been a lot of lenders who've been having access to this data. Some of them may have been gathering it, but very few have found a way to use it. Because if you're in a big developed market that has lots of traditional data on all your core customers, you haven't had the need for that uplift. Perhaps people have tried it a little bit in marketing, but from a credit point of view, they've said, well, delinquency is the gold standard. I'll just use that. But now it does feel to me as I have these conversations that more and more people are finding genuine analytical uplifts in these alternative data fields. And I think the big lenders who have been sitting back and not needing to explore that are going to have to worry about their ability to use that data if they're not doing so at the moment. How do they embrace these fields that can tell us some different stories about our customers in ways that those of us who've come up the traditional route of credit risk analytics have barely thought of?
1: So, I mean, you need to collect a certain data point for quite some time. Before you can even start testing it, right? Because you need to then see outcomes, you need to see trends. So you have to be thinking ahead quite a lot of what could ever be a useful data point, and then then make sure that you already collected in in a format that that you can actually crunch later on, right? That that's that's actually been also quite a bit of our focus to make sure that we collect the right kind of data that we collected in good and consistent quality. So that we can always come back and say, okay, if we now change the model, will which factors come out?
2: And I think what's really helpful in this current movement is that we're actually leveraging a whole lot of data that's already pre-captured and built by third parties who understand data. By which means to say, I was involved in not quite the launch of the credit bureau in the Philippines, but the early days of building the credit bureau out in the Philippines. And we were working with you know just the big banks Already had lots of traditional data, had it stored up well, and even that process of getting them all to agree on standardised layouts and processes for getting the data to the credit bureau, you know, agreeing on things like special characters to use, was difficult. And then, you know, the government wanted to expand the reach of the credit bureaus, wanted to bring more people on board, yeah, you know, which is great. This is exactly what we want to do, but it's just exponentially more difficult. How do you treat? Lenders where the data, well, one, it doesn't exist, or two, which is more common, it's patchy. So, account is there one month, it falls away the next month, then it's back again. Are you better served is the community, better served by bringing that data in, or by leaving that data out? It's really complicated, and so rolling it out in this way takes a long, long time. But actually, you know, you've got all these organisations storing data already. The mobile phones are already capturing that data. It's in a few formats. Through APIs and things, we can bring it in, and we can start using it without the need to try and convert all these businesses' data. It feels a lot more ready-made than we might have thought, you know, when we're thinking about ways to expand bureau reach in the past. So of course, uh, you're going to have demographic fields and some unique fields that you're going to want a customer to fill in themselves.
1: Correct, correct. So we we basically always on the lookout for new data sources, uh, also external providers, and whenever we see something that's interesting, we basically test it. Even if it's a small lift, if the data source itself is not giving you a huge genie, as long as it's uncorrelated and it covers a new aspect, it can actually give you a decent lift. In the end, it comes down to what can we pay per genie point of lift. And yeah, some data sources are a bit too expensive that they don't add as much as, as they would cost us, but then some are fairly reasonable at a few genie points of lift. So we say, okay, fine, why not? The difference when you go from linear regression that, that's traditionally used to, say, more machine learning types uh, model building is linear regression. You always have to reduce factors, right? Because if you once you go beyond, say, uh, I don't know, seven, ten factors, it, you very quickly go into overfitting territory. right? But with uh, machine learning, actually, the, the algorithms are quite hungry for, or some of the algorithms are actually quite hungry for lots of factors and also... Uh, you can throw in linear nonlinear uh types of data right and and it combines it very nicely and What we have seen is the more data points you you use and at least you consider in your model building effort the the more stable is is the outcome
2: one of the concerns you get when you speak to more traditional perhaps more conservative lenders when you talk about using AI and machine learning to build out credit models is a concern that it might create a sort of a black box where you don't know what it's doing with those thousand inputs and the worry that either internal audit or the regulators are going to push back on that yeah how do you think about that process of understanding a machine learning model
1: I would say we focus on performance rather than explainability um, we validate our models just like you should with validation sets we, we check them all time ads and Again, I think retail lending has to be a numbers game. And even if you don't understand exactly what's what's going on uh, inside the model, as long as you can test it and you can prove that the model and the process works, I think that that's what you should focus on, not understanding the individual case necessarily.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. So basically building the organization so that it's really quickly reactive. So you're testing all the time, you're monitoring all the time. And if something goes wrong, you'll know about it immediately. And you've got the organisational culture to work quickly, so you can implement a fix as quickly as needed.
1: Yeah, I mean, we we look very very closely at our vintages um, by model, by product, by uh, in any segmentation you can think of, and so we catch it very fast if if we see things not going the way they're supposed to go, and then we we can also act very fast. Yeah, then then we can just change the factors, see what's going on. I mean, and I think that that's a bit of a myth, right? Even in a machine learning model, there's methods to say which factors are actually heavy versus not heavy. So it's it's just a different way of, of looking at it, right? So can you tell which factor or which five factors have the biggest impact on, on decision? Yes, no problem, right? You can tell that with XGBoost, you can tell it with uh, random forest and and uh, also neural nets, I think. The thing is just you you can't put it into a neat formula, right? But that doesn't mean that you don't understand what's what's going on.
2: Yeah, that's actually a really good point, because you know, most the concern about this black box is the idea that we might perpetuate biases, human biases. But that's normally built around things like, are we unfairly biasing on gender or on race or on some other factor like that? And by knowing which fields are influencing the score, we can tell if we're doing that or not. It's not so important that we know the new ones, the complicated innards, as long as we can exclude fields that are of major concern. We know that they are not the ones influencing the model. We should be comfortable on that front. So this is actually something perhaps blown a little bit out of proportion. Uh,
1: Correct. I mean, and you're not only looking at credit outcomes, right? You can at any time look at score distributions. You can look at, has my approval rate jumped, right? If it goes from X to 2X overnight, then (laughs) maybe there's something wrong.
2: And I also think that your business model lends itself to creating more data points than perhaps a traditional lender would get. Well, not so much data points, but data opportunities. So you've got more chances to see whether a consumer is making the obligation or not. So I used to do some work in collections on this sort of theme. Often a collections agent would phone a customer who was in arrears and get a promise to pay, but they would set that promise to pay for that customer's next pay date, which makes sense from the customer point of view. You know, that's when the money's coming in. But if they miss that payment, they're basically missing two at once. So you've only got one opportunity to learn. I would always be encouraging them, particularly for higher risk customers, to move that promise to pay pre date. date. Oh, it's not always possible, but if you can do that, then you can see, first, do they make their promise to pay? And then second, do they make you know, the next month's obligation? You've created two opportunities to learn. And you're doing that with short-term loans, with intramonth payments.
1: Absolutely, right. So we, we see much more... Clearly, if customers are sticking to the contract or not, right? And again, in cards, there's there's much more delay because they take some time to ramp up the balance, and then they can pay the interest for a while, right? But you don't see you don't see credit outcomes necessarily uh, with the speed that we would see. We we actually also set the payment re- frequency to align with the customers' paydays. So in Philippines, actually, most customers get paid twice a month, and we, we ask them that when they sign up, and that's how we set their due dates. So it always aligns with their paydays um, because often delinquencies are just driven by the fact that by the time you, you're collecting, that money is already spent. So it's uh, much better in terms of convenience and also helps customers to manage their credit easier.
2: Timing that strike date is something we can sometimes forget about when we're doing prime lending in developed markets. But yeah, when I was working in Africa, it was also a core part of our strategy when we set up an account. And then yeah, if they were uh, a customer of our bank, we would model it as well. What is the right day uh, in the month to run the debit order? And we would see huge differences around Christmas, for example. Let's say everybody was traditionally paid on the 25th of the month. What most companies would do for Christmas to give their staff some money to spend over the holidays, they would move paydays earlier, so maybe the 15th. And then all our debit orders would be running, you know, 10 days after payday. And the changing risk was dramatic. And if you track that over the month, it could take a customer five, six months until they're back all the way clear again. So I guess in that way, it's once again, you helping your customers to budget better and particularly thinking of these customers often being new to credit or relatively new to credit. It's of course better for risk as well, but you're avoiding a situation where a customer might be spending money they don't have. But talking of new-to-credit or or, or relatively underserved customers, do you see yourselves as a route into formal financial services for your customers? Or are you seeing your customers stay with you and kind of you alone uh, in this buy-now-pay-later space?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, And actually, so we do see a lot of customers... I would say graduating into more traditional products. So because we, we are a member of of both uh, TransUnion and, and CSC. So we report all our loans. And so we we do some customers who then after being with us for a while say, Okay, now I applied for home loan or car loan. And it was no problem, right? Because they saw that I have very good payment record with BDs. Uh, with PIS. And so that actually helped me to get into the financial system.
2: Yeah, that's really great to hear particularly in the context of some of those industries you spoke about earlier, you know, servicing the core center workers, I know from when I was there, you know, it's the biggest part of the economy, the biggest employer in the economy, and all the formal banks say that yeah, we just from a risk point of view don't know who to lend to, and so they're going to benefit too because you know these are lenders with cheap capital where if they can find a low risk customer, they can reward them things like a mortgage or a car loan, you know, something can really improve their lives, uh, but they don't know how to find them. You're creating these customers, these good, low-risk customers. That said, you, of course, not just a route into the formal financial services. You're also a, a full-on competitor because you provide a really convenient service. And I think when we talk about buy now, pay later in the developed world, it's all sold on that convenience. And I saw in a press release that you are actually even looking at some zero APR buy now, pay later offerings in the Philippines. Is that something you're able to talk about now or is it still being launched?
1: No, sure, sure. So we actually have a couple of offers live already. So we have a couple of merchants that have implemented this. I think it's not yet very common in the market, mostly because the expectation on the merchant side is that it's it's very expensive. It's actually not that bad, probably a little bit more than you would pay in, in a more developed market, just because risk is higher here. Cost of funding is a bit higher here than say in Singapore or Europe or whatever, right? but we can do zero API loans starting at single digit subsidy rates for merchants. And that's uh, something that's really, really popular with customers, of course these are people who have actually quite a bit of responsibility. They they are the breadwinner. So used for like living expenses of the family and so on. So they don't have too much that stays with them. And so for them to save up for a mobile phone or computers, things like that, right? It's hard because there's always some emergency that comes along. And so that money gets drained. And if you can offer them a nice installment plan, it doesn't even have to be long, right? If you buy a phone for, I don't know, 10, 10, 15,000 pesos, you don't need a 24 months installment. You do it three months, six months, and you can do that at, it's zero apr it's no cost to them and so it's a very attractive product to do something also nice for, for for themselves
2: it's such a simple idea but it really is a model that resonates well with consumers and we're seeing in all the discussions we have in the uk every credit card issuer is just asking you know, what do we know about buy now pay later how can they push back against these new competitors and i'm slightly putting words into consumers mouths but i, I wonder if it does reflect some of those concerns we spoke about earlier with the credit card model and the tendency you know, to have this credit limit sitting there tempting you to spend. When you're doing buy now, pay later, there's none of that. The consumer is looking at an item and buying it. They don't have a limit that's sort of available to them in the back of their minds. Uh, and so it's a little bit more like an installment loan. And I wonder if that's part of that appeal, as well as obviously the low cost and the ability to to shop online. So I'm not surprised to see it taking off, but I do love to also hear the spin that you've put on it as this route into the credit economy.
1: The difference is really that in, in more advanced markets, you have, of course, a lot of providers for many different products already, right? So in Singapore, if you want a personal loan, you text a number with your ID and they'll, they'll give you a reply, right? Because credit bureau is like with high penetration and, and they can score you very easily, right? And, and here, that's not so easy. To get a loan, it's it's a bit of a hassle. Usually, you have to bring like documents and so on. Right? So for them, uh, since they already have their account with us, it's uh, it's then very easy for them to just to just also migrate to other products. So the cross sell or upsell becomes very natural in the app, right? Which is which is very different from how it would look like for a card transaction or um, an offline transaction.
2: Indeed, uh, thank you so much, Georg. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. If people want to learn more about your business where can they look to find some more details?
1: Uh, Very easy. So they can look at uh, our website, billies.ph, so it's like Bill and Ease, Um, or just look in the uh, App Store, Play Store, same name for for our app.
2: Excellent. So thank you again, and thank you for listening. This has been How to Lend Money to Strangers, the podcast about lending strategies across the credit lifecycle and around the world. So focusing on that second part, In next week's episode, I'm doing a deep dive into the consumer credit economy in China. China is obviously a huge market and also a market that's delivering some really exciting fintech innovation. I've heard some of the headlines that have come out from that, but I wanted to go a little bit deeper. So I've brought in two experts, both of whom have worked for banks in North America before moving back to China over the last decade or so, and both playing pretty active roles behind some of that growth that we've heard about. So join me for that show next Thursday on the Apple Podcast Player, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this one.